welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and today I'll be joined by a brilliant slate of professors to talk about climate change, conservation, and the collapse of societies. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast here on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. As usual, I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, and I'm joined today with Professor Kurt Grimm, an associate professor at the Department of Earth and Ocean Science here at the University of British Columbia. So, Kurt, um, we've been thinking for a while about how to uh, approach this issue about su- of sustainability and sort of what topics to cover and, and how to, t- to approach it from a fresh angle. But I think maybe more than anything... Um, We've been wondering how to conceptualize the problem and, sure. and really what is sustainability? Okay. Um, by the, uh, the science geeky approach, which I spent years uh, distilling towards, can be uh, very simply stated, I think. And it's that we're consuming uh, renewable resources faster than they're being renewed. And uh, to amplify that a bit is, is that we're, we're degrading the capacity of regenerative organizations, regenerative systems, to regenerate themselves by the excessive rates of extraction. But related to that, and, and I'd say more uh, closer to the cause, is that there's uh, non-material organizations that are losing their functionality, that are losing their, their robustness, their resilience, their, their innate capacities uh, for growth and health. And those are social organizations, for example. I mean, people, uh, at our, we've been agrarian people for about 8,000 years with a strong connection to place, and, and, and much of that has been lost in the last couple generations. So, in a sense, that degradation, and it's not about back to the land as a solution, but that degradation is, a, is a really a result of insufficient inputs. Uh, so, if these, the, you have if sustainability, to sort of put that into a, a simplest framework, if sustainability involves regenerative organizations, regenerative systems, which of course it does, um, the material systems are bleeding to death, and the non-material systems uh, are essentially uh, starving. They're, 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 they're suffering for lack of inputs. What sort of non-material systems are you referring to? What does this look like? Um, well, and the, the easiest to measure, and measurability is, is an issue in sustainability, but easiest to measure is uh, bioregional bio- language and culture. Is that we can measure, and you know, ecologists have measured. We're, we're living in a mass extinction of bioregional language and culture, and it's, uh, you know, uh, the other side of that is interconnected, and 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 and, 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 and the, the world has become uh, rather small and rather flat in terms of communication. But there's been a loss. So for the lack of exercising bioregional language and culture, those cultures are being lost. Mm-hmm. You're writing a book now on. This, this issue of sustainability, this word in particular, yeah. can I ask, how do you conceptualize it? How do you suggest that we move forward with okay. our understanding of the word? The thing that's most clear is I put a hyphen in it, sustainability. And it's really, sustainability is about people. Sustainability is about skills. It's about artful, skillful abundance. It's about being real about the true cost of the convenience, abundance, and choice that we have in our everyday lives here in Vancouver, for example, and uh, making better decisions. Is there no hope that maybe one day we can um, we can use our technological advancements to sort of overcome the problem and just continue consuming at a more 
um, sustainable rate does it really demand this sort of radical societal transformation in the way that we view nature and the way that we view our society and the people around us I, I, I think so I mean I like applaud there's like there's great people I mean John Robinson I'm, for example at UBC I'm just a, just cheering him on with what, what a what a what a, a visionary and the you know uh, um, with, with the you know Center for Integrated Research and Sustainability and and that is a that that's a that's a technology heavy uh, innovation and it's quite expensive, but they're also working on you know how we come to this and how we how we do it in the social process. Um, I'm also optimistic about uh, sort of the way we're learning to kind of learn from nature and learn from Aboriginal traditions. Uh, there's been a, there's been an immense uh, amount of progress there. That part being said. Um, what I'm optimistic about is that we're going to start looking at our own traditions. Mm. Is when I'm in my classroom and as I, you know, I ask students to raise their hands, how many of you are, 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 are farm, grew up on a farm? And how many of your parents grew up on a farm and your grandparents? You get to the grandparents, almost everybody in the room has got their hands up. We are, most of us, are deeply, deeply rooted in an agrarian way of being and we're a couple generations removed from it but there's a lot of wisdom in those agrarian, agrarian traditions it's not it's not hippy dippy back to the land it's a it's a it's a it's a culture way of being that's sort of about caring sharing and repairing you know to borrow a phrase from jim merkel it's about it's about um recognizing that there's there's consequences upstream and downstream of our lifestyles do you get the sense in your students that they're starting to come more to this this reading of sustainability and get, have a better sense of their place and and like you said the inputs and outputs and sort of where um, the, the the products that they're consuming are coming from or yeah. is there still a disconnect? Well, um, there's still disconnects for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we were we were busy yesterday. We were out watching the tennis matches and doing stuff, and I came and I you know boiled hot dogs for dinner. That was what our dinner was, and and uh, uh, we tossed some broccoli in there later. But it's like, it's it's not about it's not about a perfect world, uh, because we're we're all we're all fallen. Mm -hmm. But it's about um, uh, it, it, that sustainability is not a utopian vision. It's actually being real about how fallen we really are. And, and then learning to uh, respond appropriately to that imperfectness. I'm no longer trying to convert people to sustainability. I, I spent a decade doing that. Um, my colleagues at the university, uh, my colleagues in science, my colleagues uh, in, in, in particularly, and then my students. And um, it doesn't work very well. Mm. But what I found is that um, that the, the, the real leaders that have had an impact on me are people that are living artful, vibrant lifestyles that embody sustainability, that embody sustain hyphen ability. And um, it's like, wow, that, that's neat. I want to see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. so, so, for example, I think that the, uh, um, you know, that, 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 that celebration and thankfulness and uh, even simple actions like saying, please, thank you, and you're welcome, um, are incredibly important to, to uh, catalyzing and perpetuating sustainability. Are you optimistic for prospects going forward? I'm immensely optimistic. Um, there's two reasons. Uh, one is, is my own experiences. I've, I've experienced and, and overcome great adversities in my life, and I know that... that, that, that Coming into adversity and coming through adversity um, is immensely character building. 
and it's necessary for for development of, of character. And um, our society could use a good shot of character. Um, and there's uh, simple virtues like like uh, selflessness and compassion, and that are that are actually not emotions; they're actions. And we're seeing uh, at this university, for example, you know, community service learning is it's kind of exploding. It's and it's like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a tool, but it's a tool for developing these qualities in people. So I feel very optimistic about that. Um, the other reason I feel immensely optimistic is, uh, I mean, it's it's linked to my outlook, but but when we look at the infrastructure that surrounds us, that provides us with, you know, there's such convenience, there's so much choice, there's such abundance, there's continuity of everything we want, there's information ready at hand. But in some ways, I look at, 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 at people, and I mean, I, I, and I literally, sometimes I weep when I see how much that we're, we're bound up mm-hmm. and we're, we're held captive, we're, we're, we're kind of imprisoned by that. And as that falls away, um, boy, the, the the possibilities are endless, and and it's uh, well, their possibilities are great, and what it's about, it's about the resurgence of authentic uh, uh, culture, the authentic, the the resurgence of authentic uh, vitality within small human consortia in lots of different places, and and when I've been a part of that. And, and I am part of that in some places in my life right now. It's like the very best. It's, it's what we're, you know, it's what we're hungering for. So I'm looking for more of that. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Professor Grimm. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. In. Cheers. Do you want to make the right impression during your big interview? Arts Co-op would like to help. The ultimate package from the Arts Co-op Student Association includes a professional portfolio, business cards, and a USB pen. For more information, email acsapromo at gmail.com. Welcome to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddock, and I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Harrison and Dr. Alan Sens from the UBC Political Science Department. We're just going to do a little brief primer on uh, Canadian uh, climate change policies, international climate change governance, and uh, where we stand in that. So just to begin with you, uh, Kathy, uh, how is Canada perceived in the world in terms of um, their actions towards climate change? Well, I think it speaks volume that, volumes that at recent um, international climate negotiations, we've been awarded the Fossil of the Day Award, and I think at one point we got the Fossil of the Decade Award. So certainly our image is taking, taken a beating, and I think deservedly so. Um, we ratified the Kyoto Protocol, but have done almost nothing to achieve our targets, and then... Um, Late last year, uh, we're the only country thus far that has withdrawn or announced our intention to withdraw from the Kyoto Protocol. So uh, for, for a number of reasons, I think our international reputation is very poor on the issue of climate change. 
Professor Sons, you've done a little bit of traveling in your studies. Uh, what has been the climate when you've go gone around? Have you heard uh, some poor things about the way that Canadians have behaved on the international stage? Yeah, quite frequently, especially in Europe. Um, it's really quite stark in Europe because there's an impression of Canada around the world, and I think especially in Europe, that you know we're a progressive country. We're, we're a country of people with a consciousness about the environment more generally, that we're a country that has always uh, been a, a, a voice for uh, uh, positive ideas, uh, or the country of peacekeeping, or the country of conflict management, of doing the right thing. Uh, we've always had a voice that uh, was almost, in fact, uh, almost like a proselytizing voice, almost like a preaching voice in international affairs. So my reaction when I go abroad is a lot of people, my old friends from uh, Europe or around the world, they'll come up to me and go, Alan, what's going on? What's going on with Canada? Why are you taking this position? And then I'll have to try and explain to them that it's grounded in a set of political imperatives, a lot of it driven by concerns about our trade competitiveness with the United States, and a lot of it driven by our own inability, I think, to move our population along in a direction that's more positive, and of course our uh, desire to see our energy resources as a major uh, major export. So put all these things together, it's, uh, it's a pretty bleak picture, I think, for Canada abroad. I think, I think the short answer is we suck. <laughs> you know, if, if I could give one word for it, it's, we, we, we kind of suck. That's a good segue. Uh, Kathy, how is, in terms of climate change policies, how is the sausage made here? Like, what, who, where, where is the legislation coming from? What, who has sovereignty over these sorts of questions? Energy policy, climate policy, and who are the really the stakeholders uh, carving out this legislation? Well, I think uh, the place I would start is that Canada is a federal country and um, the environment is not an issue that was mentioned in 1867 uh, when our constitution was drafted. What that means is that um, constitutional authority with respect to the environment tends to be indirect. Both federal and provincial governments find jurisdiction over matters related to climate change um, by vir virtue of their jurisdiction over other things. Uh, in practice, both the federal government and the provinces have extensive authority with respect to climate change. Um, most people believe that uh, the federal government would ha have no difficulty establishing greenhouse gas emission regulations or taxes um, that would control emissions nationally. But by the same token, provincial governments also have plenty of authority to act and provincial governments um, in Canada own natural resources that are still publicly held, the so-called crown resources, which means that in practice provincial governments own the fossil fuels, they own the coal, the oil, the natural gas. They also, um, depending on which province we're talking about, own the trees that could sequester carbon or um, sites for generation of hydroelectricity, which could be an alternative to burning fossil fuels. So provincial governments are very engaged um, much more so uh, than the than the federal government in most cases. Some of them are engaged positively, some of them are engaged quite negatively in trying to exploit those crown resources. Uh, so part of the, the way the sausage is made is that the federal and provincial governments are both involved. Historically, we've had a lot of emphasis on the need for consensus among federal and provincial governments. Um, when it comes to environmental policy and a lot of other policy fields, that's very hard to come by in the case of climate change because um, we have very different regional economies. It's pretty easy for Quebec to sort of put up the flag and promise deep reductions to um, express a strong commitment to reducing greenhouse gases because they 
a rely on hydroelectricity heavily now, but they also have untapped sources of hydroelectricity. So not only can they um, satisfy growing demand for electricity with hydro, they have the potential to make money by selling their hydro to other provinces. The flip side of that would be Alberta or Saskatchewan. Um, both provinces rely on coal to get their electricity. Both provinces' economies rely heavily on development of oil and gas, particularly for exports. So their their interest or intention, if you demand federal-provincial consensus, you're not going to get it. Um, so we've tended to have stalemate there. Um, in terms of the, the broader polity, um, I think politicians whether at the federal or provincial or, for that matter, at the local level, tend to hear competing arguments um, from from voters and from interest groups. On one hand, they've got the environmental community telling them, yes, the public really does care about climate change. Yes, um, voters do support actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. On the other hand, they're hearing from um, industry. And in Canada, the industrial community is pretty greenhouse gas emissions intensive. They either produce fossil fuels, as with the um, oil and gas industry, or they rely heavily, say the manufacturing industry, on inexpensive energy from combustion of those fossil fuels. And they tend, those um, those sectors and the business community broadly, has tended to argue to politicians that um, this will hurt our economy, it will hurt jobs, particularly in a context where the U.S., had not ratified and has not ratified the Kyoto Protocol, um, you know, will be out of step, there'll be impacts on competitiveness, and voters care most, you know, first and foremost, voters care about the economy and jobs. So politicians, I think, have been caught between those two arguments, but there's been um, a lot of reasons for them to believe the industry side rather Mm -hmm. than the environmental side based on polling, based on the kinds um, um, kinds of reactions um, some governments and some politicians have received um, when they have uh, put forward more um, more effective climate policy proposals. So, how would you characterize the um, uh, the view of the federal government in relation to the view of sort of the general populace? Is is climate change still in the forefront of people's um, concerns now? No, it's not. Um, we have seen three green waves, I would call them public opinion, in um, modern history in Canada. The first was in 1969-1970. Second was in 1989. And the most recent was in 2007. Most of the time when you um, ask people, do you care about the environment, they say yes. It's a bit like saying, do you oppose child abuse? You bet, I do. If you ask people, what's the top issue on your mind? Most of the time, people say bread and butter issues, jobs, the economy, inflation. You know, during certain periods, it's been health care or national unity. It has very rarely been the environment or any particularly in particular environmental issue like climate change. And those three periods, 1969, 1989, 2007, have been the moments where the environment sort of shot from nowhere and became the top issue on voters' minds. It was the most frequently cited issue as the most important problem on the political agenda. And when that occurred, most recently in 2007, we saw all political parties and all levels of government, local, provincial, and federal, promising all kinds of um, 
uh, more aggressive measures to control greenhouse gas emissions. Unfortunately, what happened in each of those three green waves is that they didn't last very long. As soon as the economy took a turn for the worse, um, so by early 2008, the environment fell from the top of the public's agenda, and it is a relatively low priority now um, compared to the economy. When that happens, it's, um, you know, it's very difficult to adopt the kinds of measures that will actually cost money. And this is going to cost money. We need to fundamentally transform our economy in the long term that will pay for itself. In the short term, there's some, um, there's some transition costs that we're going to have to bear. And it's very hard to get voters to accept those transition costs when the environment is relatively low among um, the electorate's priorities. Professor Sens, um, what sense do you get from the student body, the students that you teach? How has, has this always been an important issue? Has it been on the wane? Um, I don't think it's been on the wane, Gordon. I think it's, it's actually the opposite. I think it's been on the increase. Um, you know, the students that I speak to, and, and uh, you know, we have to be cautious here because there may be a selection effect at work. But the students that I speak to, for the most part, are, are very worried about the environment. In fact, I would argue that climate change, in some ways, is sort of a signature feature of a contemporary student psychology. It, it almost plays the kind of role that nuclear war played uh, in the 1980s and, uh, and it's got that kind of existential concern to it uh, however I don't want to push that too far because I think the student body um, although I would argue that it's probably got more awareness about issues of related to the environment sustainability generally I think it's also a reflection of the broader body politic and I think there's a lot of students out there that are um, some are skeptical about climate change science. Some are skeptical about some of the policies and programs that have been suggested uh, as a way to mitigate against greenhouse gas emissions. So I, I think the students um, are more aware. I think it's an issue that continues to grow in everyone's consciousness. But I don't think that it's like every student at UBC is going to mm -hmm. say it's the number one issue facing them. Do you think, do you guys sense that they understand it? Or do they, you, like you said, is it just a reflection of the body politic? People are concerned about climate change because they're told that they have to be concerned about climate change. Or do they understand the sort of the nitty-gritty of it? Uh, nitty-gritty, no. Actually, uh, I don't think so. Uh, the, I'm struck by my lectures and the reaction to my lectures on climate change. And so the basic science of it. Um, and then the international and domestic responses to it and then explanations for that. And I walk students through the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change process through Rio to Kyoto, through Copenhagen to Durban. And I'm really struck by how little they do know about those processes and about the politics of them and why we're here. Um, I think they have a general sense that things aren't going in the right direction. I think they have a general sense that the world's getting warmer. I think they kind of have a basic grasp of why, but it's striking that there's not as much detail or as much nuance in those matters as you might think. So I, I would characterize it as the awareness going up and general knowledge going up, but specifics, not so much. If I can jump in on that. Um I wouldn't want to imply that people don't care, that people don't believe climate change is real, but I think it reflects 
the enormity of this problem, the enormity of the challenge we face, because it is a collective action problem on a global scale and over many generations. So to say that people care, that they support action, and yet it's not a top priority, is not to say for me that they're bad or that they're not being good citizens. It's human nature. Mm. This is an issue that affects each of us a tiny amount on a day-to-day -day basis. Collectively, we're all going to be in very big trouble if we don't find ways to address it. But it is such a difficult collective action problem given the scale, both in terms of the planet, in terms of, of time, that it's, I mean, we have to fight in a very fundamental way against human nature on this one. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to recognize what we're up against. So is there a new model that we can look at? Is there, are people proposing... Uh, are there new actors, perhaps, that you find faith in, civil society? or? Uh, you know, I'll be interested to hear what uh, Alan Sands has to say on this one, because this is, is wandering more into his territory. I think, you know, I hear of a few different possibilities. One of them is to focus on, um, I think there is a, a recognition of the need to focus on emissions from developing countries. The fact is, um, even though emissions per capita are so much lower in the developing world, they're growing very rapidly, and there are so many people in India, in China, in countries like Brazil and Indonesia, that it's just inconceivable um, in the kind of time frame uh, in which we need to act that we'll get to where we need to go if we don't get some form of commitment um, from developing countries not to reduce their emissions necessarily right away but to get on a greener development path while the industrialized countries do. So I think that's one element. Another element is to focus on the big emitting countries because the number of a country, you know, it's a relatively small number of a of countries that account for over 80% of the emissions. So can we get the really big emitters, and the really big ones there would be China and the U.S. on the same page. Um, I think there's a recognition in the absence of um, a binding a treaty with multilateral you know, targets that at least we need to have countries stepping forward and offering what they will do individually, and that was the um, the Copenhagen model. Um, so Canada has uh, has set a target to reduce our emissions by I think 17 percent below 2005 levels by 2020, which is essentially matching the U.S. We we don't have anywhere mm. close to the kind of measures in place that would achieve that. Um, so those are the kinds of things that uh, seem to be happening. Professor Sands, is there anything that gives you optimism? I think actually yes. You know, I, I think I agree completely with, um, with Kathy Harrison that there's real limits right now to the uh, prospects for a comprehensive international treaty. Two things are happening at that level. The first thing that's happening is that countries are changing the baseline. The uh, Framework Convention baseline was 1990. All emissions were measured by the 1990 standard. They're now moving that baseline. They're moving it to years like 2005, for example, as Kathy just mentioned. The second thing that's happening is they're moving the goalposts further into the future. So we started with a 2000 target in Rio. Then we uh, ended up with a, um, uh, you know, targets uh, later and later than that in, in the uh, uh, subsequent agreements. And, and then... Um, now we're talking 2020. So that goal, those goalposts, the target dates for achieving reductions, are moving further and further into the future while we've been emitting all this time. 
So it, it's kind of a miserable-looking prospect, uh, in, in my view, although something may still happen. Uh, I think where the hope lies, actually, is in the practices at other levels of governance, uh, municipal, uh, state, and provincial. Uh, I think it's in these places where practices are going to start to change, communities are going to start to change. And when those communities' practices change, I think they'll spread, and I think people will start to see that your lifestyle uh, your economy doesn't necessarily need to go into the tank, as some of the more alarmist voices out there are suggesting, in order to achieve significant mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions. I and mean, if we take California and cut it off and float it out in the middle of the Pacific and call it a country, uh, it could have a reasonable chance of making its, uh, its Kyoto targets. Uh, if you took Texas, carved it off and towed it out in the water, it wouldn't have a hope. So there's kind of um, significant variations by, by region uh, and by municipality. So I think the action has to start at a different level um, where perhaps the issues are more manageable. Kathy alluded to the magnitude of, of the problem. Perhaps acting at a more local level first and then having this effect almost like ink blot effects where you start small and then the practices start to expand and grow, becoming provincial and then national. I think that's what's going to happen because ultimately foreign policy is an extension of domestic policy. If countries start to shift their domestic practices, their foreign policies will shift as well. Kathy, have you seen any regional uh, or local climate change initiatives that have brought you optimism? I, I do agree um, with Al Sands that there have been a lot of um, a lot of very good things happening at the state or provincial and local level. Um, you know, there have been you know, cities around the world have been signing on to climate action charters. Um, the uh, at the state and provincial level, we've seen. Um, leadership in the US it's been primarily from California to a lesser extent um, New York in terms of the actions that those state governments have been adopting but also in collaborating with other states and adopting regional um, regional cap-and-trade programs we've seen California's initiative spreading to other states within Canada uh, British Columbia has really been a leader um, joining with California um, adopting some of California's more um, innovative uh, climate change measures, um, signing on to the Western Climate Initiative. All that said, I think we've gone as far as we can at this point with the local and um, regional initiatives and we're starting to see backsliding. So um, I think a lot of people have celebrated the local climate policy um, initiatives, and I think with good reason. I think local governments are a place to increase awareness. Local governments are where planning takes place. But local governments don't regulate the auto industry. They don't regulate large industrial emitters. And so, and a lot of the local initiatives are very symbolic. They're mm -hmm. things like, we're going to buy a city government fleet of hybrid cars. Well, you know, the city governments don't own that many cars. Um, at the provincial and state level, what we've seen is a truncated diffusion of policy initiatives. So um, it's the green provinces, the provinces for which it is easiest that follow British Columbia and California's lead. It's not the brown provinces. So how, how would you characterize federal climate policy today? In Canada? In Canada. Um, it's, you know... <laughs> um, what to say? Um... <laughs> I think that is we have had a lot, most, the most, um, 
Visible manifestations of climate policy under both liberal and conservative governments in Canada has have been in making announcements. We make plans and we hold press conferences. <laughs> we announce new targets. We move the goalpost and hold another press conference. For the most part, I think I've counted um, something like 10 climate national climate plans, big new announcements in a decade, and almost none of the measures that would really have an impact have been adopted in any of them, um, which, which speaks volumes. And it's not just the conservatives. That was also the case under the liberals. Um, we have moved away from a commitment to um, carbon pricing at the national level whether through cap and trade or a carbon tax to um, a fairly old-fashioned approach of sectoral emissions regulations that would still be better than doing nothing except we really have no schedule for which sectors are going to be regulated, what the standards will be, when those regulations will be forthcoming. Um, and so essentially Canada's climate policy at this point is let's wait for the U.S. to act and then we'll probably match it. Mm. That's a good transition, Professor Sens. How does how does the uh, how do the Americans affect uh, our view on the climate or our climate policies? I think they're decisive in two ways. I mean, I think the first way is uh, we always have to be cognizant uh, of the trade relationship between our two countries. We're enormously dependent on, on trade. If Canada were to enact certain domestic policies uh, to significantly mitigate against our greenhouse gas emissions. There, there would be economic consequences to that that would have to be borne by, by the Canadian export sector. That makes prices of Canadian products more expensive abroad. I mean, it's just, it's just trade economics. Now, the, what that does is it makes Canadian governments very aware uh, and very close watchers of U.S. climate change policy because whatever the Americans do, um, we could follow, but we've got to follow ideally slightly less mm. than what the Americans do. If you look at some of the negotiations, particularly around Kyoto, uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty about how the Americans were going to come in in the, in the Kyoto formula. Were they going to go with 3% or 4% below 1990 levels by, um, by 20, was it 2010? 2010's 20, the point. 2010, yeah, 2008, 2012. Um, and then... Um, we weren't sure, so we went in initially, I believe, at 3%, and the Americans went at 7 and then we readjusted ourselves to 6 <laughs> It was sort of this bizarre game of guesswork, uh, and so it's one reflection of how our greenhouse gas emissions policy, both at the domestic and international level, is pegged to the Americans. I think the second thing is there's just a, so much spillover of the de mm. debate and dialogue uh, about greenhouse gas emissions, about climate change generally between Canada and the United States. I think that has an impact as well. There's almost like this national psychology, or call it a psychosis, that we can't do anything unless the Americans do too. I'm not convinced of that, but I think there's a, there are powerful economic and political arguments behind that. Can we affect the debate in the United States? Can we affect the debate internationally? I think we've got to affect the debate in our own country first. I mean, in many ways, we're behind the Americans in, when it comes to uh, domestic and international positions on climate change. This is despite significant variances in public opinion uh, between Canadians and Americans on climate change. Canadians are, generally speaking, more aware of and acceptant of the science of climate change. They are, generally speaking, more willing to accept taxation and more willing to accept carbon uh, uh, pricing and cap-and-trade types of proposals than Americans. There's been a number of polls, some of them quite recent, that bears that out. That border makes a difference. 
and yet the current Canadian government, at least, and I would agree with Kathy that previous ones do not have a better record, uh, at least in terms of action, uh, persists in holding on to I would I characterize as a fairly anti-scientific uh, and, and anti-climate uh, change stance. It's not that it's stalling. It's not that it's trying to hide something. It's not that it's trying to be quiet. It's actually actively in opposition. Mm. And that bothers me a great deal. Maybe just to close, Kathy, a lot of your, your peers are doing a lot of work um, with the UBC 350 club. I was wondering if you could maybe give a, a brief description of, of what that club looks like and what it's, uh, it's interested in doing this year. Sure. I'm happy to do so. It, this is a, a community of students, of faculty, of staff who came together uh, after Bill McKibben's visit. And Bill McKibben, for those who are not familiar, is the founder of 350.org, um, arguably the most effective um, environmental organization, certainly grassroots one globally that has been working on climate change. Um, and the 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 motivating thing for for this group um, under the banner of UBC 350 has been carbon exports. So within British Columbia, our provincial government has done some some really progressive things, and the most notable one is adopting a carbon tax, which initially won't have that big an impact, but if we continue steadily and predictably uh, to increase that tax over time, is the kind of measure that's needed to transform our economy. So we've set bold targets, we've put in place some measures to move towards them. At the same time, though, what we're seeing is um, an increasing emphasis on economic developments that entail exporting carbon from British Columbia to other countries. And when under international treaties, each country is only responsible for the emissions within their own borders. So we can develop that coal and ship it out, which we're doing um, hand over fist. You know, we're expanding our coal exports. We can develop our shale gas, send it out through a pipeline in Prince Rupert or Kitimat as liquefied natural gas and ship it to China. We can um, build a pipeline, the Enbridge Gateway pipeline, to uh, facilitate export of tar sands, um, fossil fuel from uh, from Alberta, again, um, out through the Pacific. And all of those actions, um, they may have relatively modest impacts on emissions within British Columbia, but in practice, they will dramatically increase global climate emissions. And in fact, the, the scale of emissions increase from those activities uh, dwarf the measures that we're taking to reduce our own emissions within British Columbia. So the UBC 350 group is trying to bring attention to the issue of carbon exports. Um, we have um, uh, an event planned for Thursday, March 8th, where there'll be a panel of speakers. Um, you and me, Gordon, both <laughs> as two of them, um, speaking about those issues. And then there's, um, uh, that would be from 5 to 6 on Thursday, March 8th. And on March 31st, a plan to, quote, storm the riding uh, to uh, have faculty, staff, and students get word out in the Point Grey riding, um, that, which is where UBC is located and which just happens to have um, a member of the Legislative Assembly who is the Premier to indicate that these are issues that concern us. Again, it's not a partisan campaign. It's not um, anti-liberal. It's not anti-NDP. Anti it's talking about the, the type of future economy we want for the province of British Columbia um, and uh, its consistency with a, a vision for addressing global climate change. 
Thank you. Thanks so much, Professor Harrison, Professor Sands. Thanks for joining me. Thank You're you. very welcome. Imagine Canada and the Mutart Foundation are proud to unveil a new national contest, Students Verb Charities. Post-secondary students, listen up. You've been challenged to create campaigns that speak about the collective contribution of Canadian charities. The winner stands to gain $50,000, with a total of $100,000 in cash prizes available. Interest peaked? For contest rules and regular updates, just go to studentsverbcharities.ca. Welcome back to the Cherry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick, today, and I'm with Donald Worcester, who is a Hall Distinguished Professor of American History at the University of Kansas. His latest book is titled A Passion for Nature, and it's an award-winning biography of the famous 19th century American conservationist John Muir. Thanks so much for joining me today, Professor Worcester. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Professor Worcester, uh, who is John Muir? Why is he important? John Muir was one of the founding figures for a North American environmentalist. Uh, he, he died on the eve of World War I, but he left behind him not only a long list of books about the outdoors, the natural world, um, but also, in a, in a sense, it's his legacy, the Sierra Club. He was founding and first president of the Sierra Club. So it's his, his, his interest in preserving the natural world and national parks, wilderness, um, natural areas in general, and bringing a, a more a respectful attitude among people in dealing with the earth that has left his legacy, I think, for us. There's, de there's definitely this, this pressure today to sort of denigrate nature and think that we can transcend it, that you know, the next stage of human development is to conquer and command nature. Um, it, were there similar forces, similar uh, sentiments uh, during John Muir's day that he was fighting against, that, that preached the same sorts of things? Absolutely, yeah. There, there was uh, talk of the conquest of North America all over the place, uh, in Canada as well as the United States. Con conquering the continent, turning it into economic use, um, pushing aside the native peoples, building railroads, creating mines, cutting down forests, building cities, all of that in the name of the triumph of Western civilization or Christian civilization. Conquest of nature was, was at a feverish pitch during the time that John Muir came to live in the state of California and was traveling throughout the North American West. He saw the greed that was there, and it was pure, unadulterated greed for the most part. Uh, the fraud, the misuse, the waste of resources, very up front. I mean, he was in the California when they were 
cutting down whole groves of redwoods, uh, and much of it was wasted and left rotting on the ground. So Muir was was eager to try to moderate those forces, harness them, bring something more rational into its use, but also bring some, as I said earlier, respect for what we were destroying uh, into uh, a culture. And uh, what was happening then was basically the beginnings of what's still happening today, the globalization of uh, the economy, of uh, corporate assaults on the environment. Um, all of that was, was happening in his day. Not, not exactly the beginning, but it was a period when it was really beginning to take on momentum and become international. So where did Muir have success um, raising a new consciousness or fighting these forces? And what can they teach us about current battles like pipeline battles and uh, oil rigs and deep sea drilling? You know, what, can John Muir, what would John Muir say? Well, that's a tricky question to ask and answer to. Um, Muir would have said in the first place, I think, that uh, I don't know how to do this. Nobody's ever tried to fight these people. There's never been a campaign organized politically. There are no organizations out there. Um, reluctantly, you know, we have to do something. He was not eager to take his time out and go testify and legislate about these issues. Uh, he began to write books. Uh, he began to raise consciousness of people. He, he fought a couple of campaigns from his uh, library or study in his home, private home. He used his own money to try to get people to um, care about things. Uh, he formed political connections, sometimes with very rich and powerful people who betrayed him. Uh, he did everything he could in his later years to try to stop a dam being built in Yosemite National Park. And uh, he got a lot of support all around the country, but he lost. And so, you know, I don't know that he had a secret formula, but um, when it was all over, I think he would have said, look what we did accomplish. We now have national parks all over the place. We have national forests. We have a system for these things to add more. We've established wildlife refuges, and this was going on both sides of the international border. In A Passion for Nature, you wrote, uh, Through knowing John Muir better, we can see how the modern love of nature began as an integral part of the modern movement toward freedom and social equality, which has led to the pulling down of so many oppressive hierarchies that once plagued the world. Uh, Professor, how has the history of conservationism in the United States fit into a broader history of social justice movements, and what role did John Muir play? Well, for a lot of people today, they're completely separate movements. I think particularly people who are interested in fighting for social justice often think that trying to save wild species or wilderness is irrelevant to what they're doing. Um, maybe it goes both ways on from both sides of this issue, but I would argue historically the two grew up as partners, allied, having a very similar way of thinking about the world, that, that uh, just as, as uh, Muir would have said, we oppress peoples, we oppress the natural world. It's... Uh, or similar sorts of hierarchies we set up of power and influence. And uh, he was at his very core 
I would call him a liberal and a Democrat, an egalitarian, uh, who believed that even plants and animals and even rocks might have rights, at least have something in, in their being to respect. That was a pretty new idea in terms of traditional Christian hierarchies, but it all comes out of the same sources of the 18th century, late 18th century, Rousseau, Robert Burns in Scotland. These are John Muir's heroes, especially Robert Burns. So my point would be that uh, this is an historical connection. Whether it's logical or not, it's an emotional connection, a strong one that has endured through many, many years, that the fate of nature and the fate of people, particularly people who are not rich and powerful, have something in common. And Muir, I think, uh, would would serve as not a perfect exemplar of bringing these things together. He was accused at times of not having the best attitudes or the right attitudes toward toward others, but he was a he was a supporter of women's suffrage. He was opposed to slavery. He had a deep sympathy with Native Americans and uh, sometimes in ways that people don't acknowledge today or don't uh, see in him, but it was there, and the eagerness to defend them from um, their exploiters. So, and there's nobody who's a perfect model of bringing all of these things together, but I think there was an historical connection that you can see in Muir's life and that we need to remember today in thinking about environmental issues and not uh, divide into warring camps saying that this is my issue and you either come over and support it with me or, you know, I, uh, hmm. I have no use for you. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Royce. We really appreciate it. Okay, okay. There comes a time. It's your 75-cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply. Come by Sprouts in the sub-basement to learn more about our projects and how to get involved. I tried to kick the ball, but my tinny flew right up. I'm red as a beat, cause I'm so embarrassed. 
Welcome back to the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 101.9 FM at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Gordon Caddock, and I'm joined today on the phone by Professor Joseph Tainter. Professor Tainter is an anthropologist and historian at the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University. His best-known work is The Collapse of Complex Societies, written in 1988. We're going to discuss it today. Professor Tainter, could you maybe give us sort of a brief um, overview of that book and, and what it covers? Certainly. I, I began my career as an archaeologist and was interested in the 1980s in why ancient societies uh, would periodically collapse. And I'll say as an aside that that's what laid, led me to work on sustainability because as I, did, as I did the work on ancient collapses, I realized that what I was learning wasn't just about ancient societies, but it pertained very much to today and to our future. The, the way I phrased the question of collapse was to ask what causes societies rapidly to change in complexity. Because a collapse is a rapid simplification of a society. It's the rapid loss of an established level of complexity. Now, complexity means that a society has a lot of different kinds of parts, like social roles, institutions, occupational specializations, levels of bureaucracy, and so forth, and that these are integrated, organized into a functioning whole so that, so that you, in fact, have a system so that the parts work together. So the question I asked was, why do societies, some societies from time to time, rapidly decrease in complexity, rapidly simplify? And to answer that, you have to understand why societies increase in complexity. And I, what I see is that one of the main reasons why societies increase in complexity is to solve problems. Hmm. That, in other words, complexity is a problem-solving strategy. You can see this very clearly in things like technology, where the technology that we use, whether it's mechanical or electronic technology, it just becomes more and more complex. It has more and more parts. Uh, you can see it in our institutions if you think about um, the re how we responded to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. We responded by creating new government institutions, such as the Department of Homeland Security, the Transportation Security Administration, and also increasing organization, that is to say, control over people's behavior. Uh, and and so these these are examples of how complexity comes about to solve problems. If we think about transportation, uh, how do we solve problems of uh, increasingly um, scarce fuel supplies, oil supplies, combined with problems of pollution? Well, apparently we think the answer is to bring out automobiles that have two engines rather than one. Uh, an automobile with two engines is, of course, a more complex solution. So societies increase in complexity to solve problems, which makes solving problems an economic function. It's a benefit-cost equation. The challenge that you find is that we tend to adopt first solutions that are simple and inexpensive. And this has been characteristic of human history. We were once organized as simple foraging bands or simple agricultural communities, and those were fairly inexpensive and simple ways to organize society. Through time, societies have grown larger and they've grown more expensive. And looking at the long time period, what I see in ancient societies is that they would reach a point that economists would call diminishing returns, uh, where 
the cost of complexity in problem solving would go up and up and up, but the benefits would stop increasing proportionately, and then and that's diminishing returns, where you spend more and more for less and less net, net benefit. When this would happen, then ancient societies would start to become vulnerable to collapse. Um, they'd become vulnerable because of fiscal weakness or because the population is disaffected, people pay taxes and don't see um, the same benefits that they once enjoyed or don't see effective problem solving. And you can, you can see this process at work in our own society today um, where people are unhappy with um, the current efforts, efforts of our government to solve the economic problems. Um, and, and, and at the same time, we grow more and more complex to address the economic problems, for example, the new regulations that are in place to prevent the sort of economic meltdown that we did in 2008. So the key that I saw to collapse is societies growing more complex on basically a fixed energy base because these were societies powered by solar energy. These were subsistence-based societies in the ancient world. They would grow more complex at higher and higher costs until finally a point of diminishing returns would set in to mm. complexity and problem solving and then they would become vulnerable to collapse. So this is the sort of thing like with um, in our contemporary society you can see deep sea drilling or sort of being very desperate to find new sources of, of oil reserves and, and you see this uh, diminishing return because the, the cost of actually finding it becomes uh, increasingly, increasingly more onerous. Is, is that a good that, that's, that's That's precisely the case, and that's a very good comparison. You can see in things like the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig, um, which cost a billion dollars to construct, um, that as oil reserves become harder and harder to acquire, we have to invest more and more in complex expensive technology to uh, to get the oil out. So what does a drawdown in complexity look like exactly? Well, in, in the past, um, a, a collapse by definition is fairly rapid. So there would be a loss of institutions. And you can think uh, of the classic example of the transition from the Roman Empire to the Dark Ages in Europe, where suddenly the world shrinks. Um, People know less about the outside world. Life becomes much more localized. Uh, there are declines in literacy. Uh, government simplifies. Um, in, in, in Italy, uh, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, um, government depended entirely on owning land rather than on uh, institutional legitimacy. And, and this is characteristic of collapses, that you get overall a simplification of society, you get loss of institutions, uh, there's generally a decline in trade, and overall life becomes simpler but also less expensive for people. Uh, to what extent are these, um, what, what might be the limitations of these analogies in your, or these comparisons in your research? Um, I actually find the comparisons very compelling. Uh, what, what we are doing today is very similar to many of the things that ancient societies did. Uh, there are some differences. Um, a market economy gives you a capacity for solving problems um, through adjustment in prices that ancient societies often lacked. Uh, one of the major differences today is our high rate of innovation and there are people who think that we don't need to worry about resources because um, 
scarce resources are their own cure. They bring forth technological innovations through uh, price incentives. And certainly we've managed to survive to this point um, through technological innovation, and we have actually a very high rate of innovation. But some colleagues and I have shown that our, the productivity of our system of innovation is actually declining. Uh, it's been declining for some time. Some scholars think it's actually been declining since the late 19th century. Mm. So it's not clear that innovation will forever get us through our problems, as many people assume it will. Right. Um, I wanted to also talk about you know the idea of sustainability itself as a, as a historical concept. Um, do you find it useful as a way of discussing these issues and sort of when has it come about? Has it always been there? The factors that make a society vulnerable to collapse or able to survive evolve over very long periods of time, generally longer than a human lifespan. Uh, I'm talking periods of decades to generations to centuries. What this means, and I realized this early on, is that sustainability has to be a historical science. You have to understand what the long-term trends are and whether it's possible to intervene in those trends. And so I've come to the conclusion that statements about future sustainability that don't have a time dimension to them have to be considered suspect. Mm -hmm. uh, they simply have not addressed all of the relevant factors. So yes, you can look at you can look at past societies. The Roman Empire uh, existed um, in in its classic form in which we know it for at least seven hundred years, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, that's a pretty good run for any society. So yes, you you can look at past societies and say yes, uh, they showed themselves to be sustainable for long periods of time. And so, what, what were the measures that that they took to ensure that they they were able to sustain themselves for so long? What was characteristic of the Roman society that we can perhaps emulate today? I don't know that there was anything special about Roman society for most of its existence. It, it was they were of course militarily successful, but it was basically a way of life based on peasant agriculture. Mm -hmm. Uh, which um, which can be very persistent and sustainable. It's one of the most enduring of human institutions, and, and I think this I think this is really the answer to your question: was that as an ancient society based on peasant agriculture, um, as long as as long as there was no attempt to extract too much from the land, uh, was sustainable for very long periods of time. What I, what I think people don't understand is that the way we live today is highly anomalous. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are a unique society in human history. Uh, our prosperity, our capacity for innovation, our technology, all of these, our, our life expectancy, um, our, our health care, all of these are fairly recent developments in human history. But they're not normal in a statistical sense. For most of human history, um, people had barely enough material culture to survive. Um, populations were either stable or grew very slowly. Life expectancy was short. Uh, life expectancy at birth might be only about 40 years or so, and a person 50 years old would be considered very old. And this is the normal human condition. Uh, there was very little in the way of health care, uh, very little in the way of material culture. Uh, the reason why we have so much today is because of fossil fuels. We think that we have so much today because we worked hard and innovated, 
But those things wouldn't have mattered without fossil fuels. It was fossil fuels that gave us the wealth that we enjoy today. And and energy is the key to our future. Uh, we, we need to resolve the question of what we're going to use for energy sources in the future because um, the net energy, the E-ROI on fossil fuels is declining, and it's declining rapidly. So did, have you ever experienced this sort of pushback in, compares, in comparing these ancient civilizations with um, modern United States society because of this idea that we're just, we're different, you know, we've like you said, there's this conception that we're so, we've reached this great standard of living because we were so smart and innovative? Oh, I think the, the pushback you refer to is widespread. I've never personally encountered it mm. because when I explain things to people they understand what I'm saying. Mm. Uh, they understand, they, they under, when, once I point out how complexity comes about and the role of fossil fuels in our prosperity, people generally understand. Uh, mm -hmm. I find that people understand complexity because they, they experience it in their own lives and, and you simply need to explain it a little bit to them and, they, and then they understand how complexity evolves and why we've become as complex as we are. But our complexity is dependent entirely on being subsidized by fossil fuels. Alright, well thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time, Professor Tainter. Really appreciate uh, coming on. My pleasure. That was the Terry Project Podcast on CITR 11.9 FM at the University of British Columbia and now available on iTunes. 